blessing from the prophet Zechariah, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem, and if one asks him, What are these wounds in your back? you will say, The wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, says the Lord of hosts. Continuation of the Holy Gospel according to John. At that time, knowing that all was now finished, said Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there, so they put a sponge full of vinegar on the hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. The Saving Words of the Gospel I'm celebrating today a, a votive mass of the Passion of the Lord, uh, which I have not done actually for a very long time, but it's one of the masses that is traditionally uh, celebrated on a Friday when there is no other feast that outweighs uh, the votives. And um, I do so for a specific purpose right now, because I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that if the Lord uh, underwent his passion, then we all have to undergo our passions, and the church has to undergo a passion as well. And I think we're seeing this, um, we're seeing this passion take place. And, you know, there are things that repeat itself. I'm, I, I think about, for example, that the first, you know, the, during, the, during the course of the Passion, uh, really, which begins with the Last Supper, um, and therefore the consecration of new bishops, the first collective act of the body of bishops was to betray the Lord and to then uh, to run away, uh, with the exception of of John, they would they would come. They all came back to their their senses and so forth. But uh, this was the first collective act of bishops, and indeed one twelfth of them sold the Lord for money. So if we see if we see the church suffering at the hands of those with the episcopal character, uh, it shouldn't surprise us, because the, if the church if the Lord had His passion, the church has His has its passion. And the suffering, part of the suffering is going to come at the hands of her own ministers, including, including her bishops. I know that I mentioned this before about um, the, uh, the side of the Lord and the piercing of the lance. But, it, you know, it helps just to mention it again. You know, in the temple sacrifice of Passover, there were probably about a quarter of a million lambs slain at each Passover. And then the blood had to be carried from the throats as they slit them had to be carried up 
the stairs by priests in gold and silver basins and then poured or thrown upon the altar. Well, that's a lot of blood, and it has to go somewhere. So it went into a channel, drained into a water channel beneath uh, the area, which flowed out of the side of the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley, which is between the Temple and the Mount of Olives. And so John, obviously, is seeing the parallel here between the body of Christ on the cross and the Temple Mount with the blood and water coming out of the side. And so he says, I, I, I saw this. I saw this with my own eyes. And remember that the Lord had said, destroy this temple and I will make it in three days. So he is the temple. And so if Christ's body is the temple, then the blood and water from his side, that, that means that the heart of the Lord, which is pierced by a lance, is the very core of the temple. It's the Holy of Holies. And so we, um, we, when, we look at the when we look at the crucifix, and we see the the uh, the wound in the in the side of the Lord. Um, it's something that should remind us of all of the of all of the the foreshadowing that went before um, in all of salvation history, all of salvation history, and the and the laws that God had about how to sacrifice, how to worship Him, and so forth. The laws becoming and the sacrifices becoming. All each time more complicated because each time they, they, they were made more complicated by God because the people had been breaking covenant after covenant after covenant. And so he kept piling more and more compl complicated things on them uh, to break them down and to, to humble the people before them uh, so that eventually they would be uh, stripped of their pride and sacrifice their, uh, sacrifice their contrite hearts. Um, so um, in this moment um, of trial for the church and passion for the church, I'm thinking, for example, for example, I just saw a, I just saw a piece at the tablet um, with the uh, uh, prefect of the congregation of, of divine worship and uh, a particularly uh, progressivist and I don't know, I mean, even <laughs> a reporter that is so deferential to a certain direction that it's it's really quite cringeworthy. Anyway, um, this uh, this prefect was said all manner of absurd things, uh, absurd and really untrue things. You know, for example, that the only reason, you know, the reason why Benedict XVI allowed the old mass to be said was for the sake of those people who weren't able to make the uh, the transition to the to the Novus Ordo, which is patently ridiculous uh, from from Benedict's own uh, own description of why he did it, um, I mean it's just patently untrue. Um, another thing that he was wor terribly worried about was the fact that young priests uh, were saying, beginning to say the old mass immediately after ordination, which meant that they just didn't understand Vatican II. Well, you know what? There's a little problem there that the seminarians, the seminarians who go through seminary now are going through the formation that is totally and absolutely under the domination of the way they wanted they've wanted it to be now for decades and it's nothing but Vatican II 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 and so it may be it's possible that these young 
so that these seminarians and these young priests, having heard so much of Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, have drawn their own conclusions from it, and having imbued Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, they have determined that it is not inconsistent with Vatican II to say the the, the older mass. That maybe it's possible to harmonize the two. And while that's not conceivable for another generation who grew up in the halcyon days of the 1960s with rupture and, and revolution and so forth, these younger guys who don't have any baggage from those days, having been formed in a certain way with the, with the ever-looming uh, presence of the council in every possible course that they've had, uh, it's very possible that they have imbued uh, maybe a truer spirit of Vatican II than the spirit of Vatican II that they all had, you know, back in the Halcyon days. And that spirit, which that, that coming from the, the council documents themselves, um, has been integrated in such a way that they don't see a disconnect between the older form of Mass and the newer. As a matter of fact, that would be manifest in the preaching of what the guys are saying from the public, from the pulpit, how they catechize liturgically, you know, the, the people that they would be with, um, in, a, in a proper understanding of, of active participation, full conscious and active participation, which seems to be the, the, uh, the you know, the turning point of, of problems that some of these progressivists have. Um, but... You know, then, then what they'll do is they'll respond, oh, no, well, you see, um, yeah, maybe maybe they maybe they have been hearing Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, but, but they're misinterpreting it. Well, first of all, if they're misinterpreting it, it's because they were taught to misinterpret it. You know, that's bad teaching. And if it's so widespread, then that's a massive indictment of the, the process of formation that they have been in charge of all this time. To top it off, I read something, I read another thing where another rather uh, rather popular and absolute papalatrist, sycophantic and even dangerously sycophantic uh, commentator out there made, made, the, made the comment on Twitter that uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, you know, he gave that famous speech uh, to the Roman Curia about the hermeneutic of continuity, the hermeneutic of rupture and discontinuity, and so forth. And then he said, and I am not making this up, that that has been misinterpreted, and even Benedict the Sixteenth misinterpreted his own speech, his own theory, that even Benedict XVI didn't know what it was he was saying. You see, that's how they're doing this. It's an Orwellian kind of a thing where they, they, take, they, take, the, they take the interpretation of the story, memory hole it, like in 1984, and then create a new story to replace it. And then they say it over and over and over and over and over again until people begin to forget what the original idea was, and they assume the new one. 
That's what's going on. And every time this happens, it's like the pounding of a new nail into the body of the Lord. And so the, the church has to have her passion. We have to experience the passion uh, along, uh, with, uh, along with her. Um, we are not um, exempt 